Emilio. Yes. My friend, my business partner, my my lifelong chariot into this organized world of business. I fill out the tax. Have forms. you ever wanted to make a game? <laughs> yes, of course I have. Um, who hasn't really? Uh, Mormons. No, not Mormons. The Amish. Um, <laughs> Mormons probably play prob- video games. They probably are Amish game developers. Let's be real. Yeah, but they develop like board games. And who who plays board? I play board games. Don't don't you dare make fun of board games. Um. Well, in the process of developing a video game, uh, you you know you have to like pay your developers, and you have to come up with a design document, learn and how to code, get artists and everything, and learn how to code. But you you also have to take a journey, a very literal journey. Uh, do, do you know any of the steps of this journey? Can you illuminate for our audience? Well, uh, when I did try to make a single game, uh, what you have to do is you got to go find Reggie. You got to go on a spirit quest. He has to give you uh, a, a chalice of Mountain Dew. You got to sup from it, and then uh, you're filled with the wisdom of uh, making vi- uh, good video games. That's that. That's it, right? I'm I'm pretty sure. Well, normally, yeah, but a step that you can take. An extra step, you might say, an E step, an ES, <laughs> you can take to ensure that your game is extra successful is to go to El Paso, Texas, where a landfill of ET for the Atari 2600 sits. And there you have to sacrifice something to it, and boom, your, your game is successful. Successful. Are you telling me that my uh, ASCII roguelike didn't become a hit because I didn't get the Prima, Prima strategy guide to game development and I missed that important step? Yeah, uh, basically I'm telling you that uh, you didn't sacrifice your firstborn to Atari and now you're going to fail for the rest of your life. Sorry. Ah, damn. I guess I have to do podcasts. Well, on that <laughs> note, welcome everyone to uh, to Bitemarks. I'm getting the things mixed up. Hello, everyone. Last, so, uh, sorry. Last time, saying? last time we were recording, it was very hot. Today we're recording; it's actually raining. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Callum got his wish. Hey, it's not raining by me. You got my wish. Yes. Unlimited no. Power. <laughs> uh, well, before it goes to your head, um, today we're going to be talking about something very special and close to our hearts. Uh, industry and history. So, Amelia, why don't you introduce the topic to our guests? Because I should never be allowed to speak. <laughs> so, if you're watching this or listening to this uh, on Spotify, YouTube, etc., uh, you probably are struck with a, a singular observation. If you just go onto Steam and look at the look at the uh, the storefront, and that is the price of games is too damn high. Uh, Trying to buy a game like uh, Red Dead Redemption, eight hundred rand. That's uh, that's a lot of money. <laughs> Red Dead Redemption Two is a lot of game, but it's still a lot of money. And even then, you know, usually a lot of people tend to only buy video games uh, when those games are on sale, uh, and that leads us to a very interesting position where a lot of people will, you know, want to have games, but they can't usually buy them. And the question is why. Why are games as expensive as they are? And 
is there actually maybe an actual explanation for it? Or are video game prices kind of like uh, a D20 roll when, you know, the producer or the publisher will come out and say, this game costs this much money. So this episode... A D20 roll? <laughs> oh my gosh. Guys, if you haven't noticed by now, we're nerds. Hey, hey, we're tr- we're, look out for our uh, launch of our uh, other podcast, uh, D20 Marks, <laughs> a podcast about role-playing games and politics. No, stop. No, stop. Stop it. Um, just to highlight your point real quick about how expensive games are, um, a game like Cyberpunk 2077 came out it's also 800 rand and a game like yakuza like a dragon it came out and it's a thousand rand <laughs> i remember uh when fable 3 came out and i think uh if i recall correctly some i saw it for like 1200 rand uh so yeah prices video game prices are crazy and they're expensive and you know it, it's it feels like at least to many of the consumers that the video games aren't really getting better now I can already hear uh, at least one person comment, but video games have always remained $60 uh, in, in their uh, horrible voice. And, uh, uh, well, no, <laughs> they haven't. And uh, as we will... Explore, We're going to get sued by Jim Sterling. I'm, I'm telling you right now. Well, I, I mean, I feel like Jim Sterling... He is invented kind of, funny voices. I feel, like, you can't. I feel like Jim Sterling is the kind of guy where if you can meet him in the wrestling ring, he won't sue you. Uh, so Cal, Okay, gonna we're going to have to... <laughs> Guys, comment um, our wrestling personas because apparently that's a new thing we have to learn to do now. Uh, I mean, we have he, to fight Jim Sterling for funny voices, please. If he does try to sue us, you can go and challenge him in the ring, and I will. I will be your uh, wrestling coach. You're the one who infringed upon this. <laughs> no, you're challenging him. I'm your manager. <laughs> if that, I offered a tag team here, my guy, and you, you, you shot me down. So. Now you're allowed to go into the ring on your own. I, I, uh, when when I'm getting my face piled into the into the uh, into the ground, then I hope you. You, I hope you know it is really look on this. Yeah, but as you know, the the real point is, of course, that uh, video games kind of don't really cost sixty dollars anymore. They actually cost quite a bit more than that, and uh, we will talk about this. But before we do anything about the, the here and now, we have to talk about the past. And uh, Callum brought up E.T. for a very good reason. Why don't you uh, uh, tell them, Callum? Well, I'd like you to cast your mind back to the 80s, the 1980s, the 1980s, you might say. Specifically 1983, when an event happened that I'm sure most of you have guessed at now called the Video Game Crash of 1983, which is super catchy. But in Japan, it was called Atari Shock. And there's a very good reason for that. The leading game uh, console developer at the time was Atari, with things like the Atari 2600 and uh, the Atari 5200, to the point that another company called, let me just find their name real quick. It was ColecoVision. Oh, that's catchy. Excuse me, sorry. No, that was the console, the uh, ColecoVision. Coleco actually created an add-on so that Atari 2600 games could be played on their console. A it was Coleco, a time... A Coleco sounds yeah. like a drink in a bar that's like 30 bucks, and you go there, uh, and it, it's just like an olive in a martini glass 
with like Mountain Dew or something. Something weird, you know, something like that. This is a fancy sounding drink. <laughs> Anything with an olive in it gets an immediate pass from me. But um, it I get you. It sounds like you mix it with Sambuca and it becomes mm. like syrup. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway. Uh, Kaleko. It, sorry, not you've gotten me mixed up now. Damn it, Amelia. <laughs> um, what was I saying? The Atari. This is fun. Uh, the Atari. Uh. They could be run. Oh on yeah, okay. Like so it was a t- it was a time of a lack of third party support. It's what's the most important thing for a game to sell? I mean, for a console to sell games. Exactly. And who makes games? Well, uh, mostly overworked people in uh, Asia, but uh, <laughs> uh, usually the company who sells the console or a third party. Uh, a, a dedicated game developer, if you will. So to explain to, I mean, I'm sure that we don't have many laymen in our audience, but in case you're here more for the politics than the games, how it works is you get first party game design, which is within the company itself. So if Sony makes a game for the PlayStation, that's first party. And then you get third party, which is a separate company that makes a game for that. So like Activision will design do they still make call of duty yeah or is that infinity ward no no some of them are uh infinity ward but usually it's activision blizzard okay well activision will design call of duty and then they will get a deal with sony to sell it on the playstation is there a second party developer I don't know, actually. Um, I think that would be an interesting video to do, but I've I've never heard of second party development. I imagine that would be like a collaboration. Maybe it's it would be something like uh, you've got a, a studio that is very closely affiliated with the actual producer. So I don't know. Maybe uh... I think it's kind of like first world and third world. In that I've I've heard that second world countries were Soviet countries. But I, I've never seen strong evidence to support that. But it's like how there's no real second world. You're either a first world country or you're a third world. Yeah, I suppose it's something like that. I mean, it's an interesting t- uh, topic, but we could definitely talk about that in the video. But uh, yeah, please mm. continue. So you've got third party Another developers. Day. Yeah, third party developers were a big deal. And unfortunately, in the 1980s, no one treated them very well. Did you know that... Um, I imagine most people know this because they've probably seen that movie that came out, Ready Player One. Yeah. I read the book. The book is better. It's not good. <laughs> it's, 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 it's better. It's, it's like um, feeding yourself nostalgia through an IV. I read it in high school when I was like 14. It was amazing when I was 14. Yeah, it, that's the target demographic, to be honest. It really is. Um, but... I this is where I learned I need to stop umming. This is where I learned this fact. In the game Adventure or Hero, you are a little yellow square and you have to travel through the world and everything. But if you pick up a specific block, which is a key in the final dungeon, and you go into one of the rooms, you unlock an Easter egg, which is the very first Easter egg ever, and it's the lead designer's name, the lead developer's name. Because Atari didn't believe in crediting developers. Oh yeah, totally. They uh, a lot of these early Easter eggs for many video games are just uh, literally just a name. Now, part of it is because, of course, space is very precious on a video game, and you can't really squeeze in a lot. But also, part of it is just that the game developer is 
kind of a faceless person in comparison to the game company. Yeah. And so we can we can kind of see because third party development isn't treated very well today even. I mean, look at Nintendo. Nintendo has a terrible history of mistreating third party developers. Well, I say mistreating, but like they don't have good relations with third party developers. If it's uh, not the Mario, it's not the A-OK. I hate you. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> Come on. Mario was the Mickey Mouse of, of, of video games. Is he? Uh, I mean, as, a, as a symbol of, of an evil, tyrannical corporate empire, yeah, maybe. Um, I, gosh, I'm so indoctrinated that... <laughs> Like, I can't even imagine Nintendo as an evil corporate company, even though I'm fully aware that if we show footage from one of their games, we have to pay them 40% of our ad revenue. Which is nothing, so we owed them money. <laughs> exactly, so we are in debt to Nintendo. Thanks, guys. There's a, a N- Nintendo penal colony, like, yeah, where all the debtors who, you know, showed footage of Nintendo games have to go and, like, I don't know, uh, <laughs> make uh, mind sa- pixels, mind pixels, or maybe they're like uh, making Nint- uh, Mario levels for Super Mario Maker or something like that. <laughs> oh God, I can imagine no worse fate. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of worse fates, uh, you said that uh, game developers were really uncredited. Yeah. So it, it eventually ended up with things like um, a lot of the lead designers in Atari broke off and formed Activision. But it was this weird moment of... um, It was a very turbulent time where developers weren't being treated right uh, in a different way to the way they're not being treated right today, Mm. but still not being treated right. And it, it created this tension. And there's so many things that was happening at that point that it just led to a crash. Specifically I mean, ev- where, though? Because you mentioned that, you mentioned that you know in Japan it was called the Atari Shock. So are we to presume that it only really happened in America? It is. It's the crash of the Western games industry, which was really the only console industry, and I, I use that very particularly because one of the main factors as to why this crash happened was that people were starting to shift over to computers more. And everyone else, um, I don't really know the situation in Japan uh, very well at this time, but I believe they were still very into arcades. There wasn't a huge home console market yet. Yeah, yeah it seems like uh, in the 80s, it was kind of the case that, oh, in Europe, everyone is doing their whole fancy thing with you know, personal computing and, you know, for the most part, uh they're kind of an independent thing in japan it's not like they're also you know very heavy in computers but in america there's a home console craze that was sweeping the nation um and everyone just wanted one all the kids wanted one and so there was a lot of market saturation yeah but let me let me drop a hot take on you Go ahead. These consoles weren't very good. <laughs> you mean a, a hardware designed in the 1980s for playing games made in the 1980s is not going to be very good? <gasps> I'm shocked. It's it's wild, I know. Um, I, I'm not going to 
talk out of turn here, but they were essentially arcade machines that didn't require you to put coins in them. There is a, you know, for viewers at home, there is a very interesting relationship between uh, the way that we think of value in video games, uh, just to go on a little bit of a, a digression here in, in terms of, uh, you know, arcades, because, of course, the first real exposure that many people, especially older people, would have had to video games would have been the arcade. And that game model is you pay coins to have the opportunity to play the game, and uh, they're designed to be very difficult. They're the dark souls. <laughs> they're the dark so- arcade games are the dark souls of game mediums because they're designed to be difficult. Ugh. And uh, in a real mastery, like if you knew someone who actually could play an arcade game really well, that was like watching a wizard, you know, cast his magical spells. Because I would play these arcade games and I would just get demolished. <laughs> because- oh yeah, no. Um, do you remember Magic Company? Uh, no, the name rings a, a bell, but, uh, yeah. Magic Company was like a, a chain of arcade slash bowling alleys. And, yeah. uh, we used to go there with, um, uh, my family every now and again. There was one in like, I think it was Menlin Mall. Yeah, and I do remember now. My sister and I used to play Tekken a lot <laughs> on, on the, on the little arcade thing. And we would get defeated <laughs> i used to play time crisis i was really into that and i i always remember struggling you know because no matter how fast you can shoot in that game you can just never shoot quite fa- that's why it's called time crisis <laughs> <laughs> and it, it really drills into you like the important thing is here um to, to take away is that the arcade model of video games is that you spend relatively little money you know Many of these machines were coin-operated for a reason, right? Because you pay for them in coins. And that gets you into the experience. But you have to have a mastery of the game that requires, A, spending a lot of money over a long term, and, you know, B, also spending a, money, a lot of money in the short term, you know, to get more lives and so on and so forth, because the game is really hard. When that translated into home consoles, a lot of these early games for home consoles were also just very difficult. <laughs> um True, but you you also have to take into account that that no one had designed home consoles yet. I mean, skipping ahead a little bit, uh, after the crash, Nintendo swoops in and saves the world and everything with Mario. And Mario had a live system. And it has had a live system for a long time. Until, like, pretty recently. And I think even Odyssey has a live system. Yeah. Do you know... but like that's that's an outdated concept that was used in arcade machines because it it like gave you three chances, which made them more forgiving and then more popular. Yeah, and then you would die and have to restart. That's it's pointless in a home console. You you wouldn't play an arcade game, I think, if uh, you had one chance, you know, per coin, and if you died, you had to restart. So therefore, in order to give players at least some reason to try to keep playing the game. Uh, they would give players, you know, multiple lives. But you're totally right. The live system is really uh, a relic uh, of, you know, having lives in a platformer is kind of like seeing a points meter in an FPS game. It doesn't really, right. it doesn't really make sense. And I remember seeing points meters in FPS games. You know, that's the thing. And so uh, it is totally a relic. Um, I remember Dino Crisis, I think, used to do that a lot for the PS1. It, um, I think it still did that thing where if you shot 
a dinosaur in the head, it would like show how many points <laughs> above the head that you got. Uh, that game was a mess. Anyway, we were talking about things. Yeah. So in this time, right, what we can really talk about as a games industry uh, approaching the video game crash, and I'll, I'll let you take over just uh, in a second, but we see that they have an industry where a lot more companies view video games as kind of like a license to print money, right? Uh, video yeah. game sales are going up year and year, year by year. You know, uh, in the beginning, uh, home consoles are kind of expensive, but over time, they slowly but surely go down uh, in price as more people start playing them. Uh, but the market kind of becomes oversaturated with games and a lot of games that people don't really find to be as enjoyable. And, you know, if you've played Pitfall, then, you know, uh, you're not going to really be uh, excited by falling into the Pit 2000, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that I will say that I am very grateful for in this generation of games consoles. And this is the only thing I'm grateful for. And I, it, it's still like, it still can be better, but I'm so grateful. We only have three console companies (laughs) because while, like you say, there was a, an oversaturation of games that came from the fact that there was an oversaturation of consoles. Mm. I mean, we've got the Odyssey Squared, the Intellivision, the ColecoVision, Atari 5200, the Vectrex. And those, those are only some of them, you know? Why do you There's, think there were so many consoles? Well, every company... I guess it's it's that philosophy that uh, you need to do in-house developing. And it's kind of the same philosophy that every uh, publisher has now by getting their own online store. Oh yeah, every everyone's got an online store these days. Ubisoft, uh, Bethesda, um, EA, Epic, Epic. Uh, so they they see like, oh, hey, Steam has an online store and they're printing money over there. <laughs> so let's go and do that. Everyone was like, oh, Atari's got a console and they're printing money. Let's do that. Hmm. And i think in in a in a very early case a lot of these games were not interoperable like if you got an atari you could not take a game for an atari and plug it into your coleco vision if you were a cursed enough kid to have a coleco vision uh, well no like i said at the beginning of this video you you forgetful frederick uh coleco actually invented an add-on to allow you to play atari cartridges I assume, of course, because there were probably more Atari games than there were Coleco games. Well, yeah, because Atari had been around for the longest, so they had the most developers. They they had the biggest library. Hmm. And in the same way that the Xbox 360 kind of won the seventh console generation, the PlayStation 2 won the generation before that, it all came down to the fact that they had the biggest games libraries. Hmm. But that leads to the final straw of the 1980s the 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 spark that set off the atari shock to summarize there are three things that caused the crash three categories okay it was the oversaturation of the console market people shifting over to uh personal computers and the damning damning (laughs) bullet that went into atari's head was customer confidence becoming shaky. (laughs) 
how many times have I told you that I am not buying a Bethesda game or a CD Projekt Reddit, Red game anymore if this year alone, Emilio? Way too many to count, Callum. Way too many to count. Now imagine that, but like times a hundred, <laughs> because Atari is the only people, are some of the only people making games, and the only people making bad decisions. Hmm. So Atari were like the titans. They were like the big. They were the big company, and I'm over exaggerating, obviously. But I mean, would. Everyone was making bad decisions at the time. But Atari were, like you say, the Titans, so their decisions had the most impact. You know, it was the 80s. Everyone was doing cocaine. Um, no one <laughs> no one sitting in a, in a corporate boardroom oh at the time probably even knew how to play video games. I'm sure that's not going to bite the industry uh, <laughs> in the back uh, years later. Um, when, when David Atari decided to have some of his sinus sherbet, <laughs> and and thought to himself, what's what's a really popular movie from the eighties, the period of time that we are in now? <laughs> well, allow me to elaborate on a young genius named Steven Spielberg, who thought up the idea of a of a small alien that needs to be returned home. Do you remember that movie? I actually kind of have nightmares about E.T. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I've never I watched it. Is it good? Well, I mean, okay, so here's the thing about E.T. If he, There's something just very weird about E.T.'s design that I think always freaked me out as a child. Because um, <laughs> I remember watching E.T. when I was fairly young, and I remember looking through the movie and going, ah, this thing is awful. Ah, get it away from me. I mean, yeah. I, I he looks having... like a living raisin. <laughs> yeah, he has a very ugly design. And look, I don't want to, I don't want to be, you know, human centric here, but like there is something very unsettling about the E.T. character. And I've, you know, I, I remember seeing the movie and thinking, wow, this is really weird. I, if I found an alien in the woods, I would, I would like tell my parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't keep that to myself. You know what E.T. looks like? What? He looks like Wally mm. if Wally had flesh. Yeah. Like flesh Wally. And that's the exact attitude you need to go into the rest of this video with flesh Wally. Uh, yeah, that's going to be the byline of this episode. Flesh Wally. <laughs> uh. But. Uh, uh... <laughs> The Atari Shock colon Flesh Wally. <laughs> I, I, look, I don't say E.T. was necessarily a terrible movie. I can see how in the standards of the time, a lot of people would have really liked it. But I gotta Whoa, be, I gotta, take that, the 80s. <laughs> I gotta level with you, Callum. I mean, if everyone's on cocaine, I mean, yeah, sure, the E.T., uh, yeah, let's do it. An alien, he goes home, whatever. The bike flies. Uh, spoilers for E.T. a very romantic view of the 80s. I, I, cocaine's expensive, dude. Uh, things were cheaper, uh, you know. Uh, stagflation hadn't quite set in yet. But I, I, the 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 real problem for me, because having having seen ET, Caleb, I'm gonna level with you. I don't really think there's anything that could be turned into a game in ET. It's a pretty self-contained story, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think the best game that could come out of ET is maybe like the end sequence. 
like an ET kart racer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that 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 that's probably the only thing that I would maybe say. But you know, we are years away from uh, successful kart racers really being implemented. Uh, back at the yeah, day. and I mean, no one had invented walking simulators yet, so you couldn't just like dick around in a room learning about ET's culture. Yeah, yeah, actually, you know, ET would probably make an okay walking simulator. You'd have to have really good voice acting to save it, though. I mean, it's a video game. <laughs> you don't have to have good voice acting at all. That's con- entirely optional, everybody. Mm. So, in the in the context, uh, in the historical context of the Atari shock. Uh, we're not saying that E.T. caused the Atari shock. Uh, E.T. was like the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand um, by, you know, in Sarajevo. Killing the Archduke... Wow. <laughs> that, that's a bit of a, an exaggeration, but yeah. Ki- yeah, yeah ki- it was kind of like that. Killing, killing the Archduke didn't immediately necessarily trigger World War One, right? The heads of state have been assassinated before it didn't cause World War One, but it was the casus belli for the actual real problem that were, was various imperial nations and their weird set of alliances between one another. Like, you know, World well, War One. No, I don't. I wouldn't say that. I would say it's more like um, it's more like the execution of the Romanov family after the Bolshevik Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> and you gave me flack for the uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand reference. Come on. <laughs> well, no. Okay, listen to me. Because Archduke Franz Ferdinand's death started something. It started a huge global event. This is more the start of the end of something. Mm. And the... I was going to say the the execution of Louis the Seventh, I think, for the French Revolution. But really, either revolution, the execution of the leader it ended the imperialist rule of that country. Can't have a a Tsarist regime if you don't have a Tsar. Exactly. And that's what happened, is Atari, E.T. for the Atari 2600 came out. It was bad. Everyone returned it, kind of like a game that came out last year, Amelia. (laughs) And it was the last straw. For that company they sunk a ton of money into getting the license they forced their developers to put it out by christmas of that year even though Ooh. development started in like june isn't that, aren't we getting uncomfortably close to a comparison <laughs> Ooh, topical references <laughs> it's almost like crunching your developers and forcing them to work in a super short schedule that you didn't properly work out doesn't produce good results I'm surprised. But do go. I'm glad. Yeah, so they returned all the games. Uh, The company didn't have anything to do with the cartridges, so they put it in a landfill in Texas. A mass grave (laughs) of plastic (laughs) in Texas. Hopes and dreams. What a a gruesome fate. Also environmentally terrible. What a disaster. Mm. That sunk the company. And because Atari were the leaders, uh, as soon as they went down, people started realizing consoles aren't good. PCs are better. And a lot of other companies started going down. And a lot of stores stopped carrying games consoles. Oh, they moved them to like toys. No, no, no. no. In the the Western games industry, they were electronics. Ooh, right. 
Oh yeah, my and bad. The, yeah, the the whole thing was that when Nintendo came out with Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, they sold it as a toy. Which is actually funnily enough why games are advertised to boys, because when they sold it in the toy section they had to pick between boys' toys or girls' toys, and they thought boys would be the bigger demographic. Yeah, it, it really does go back to like weird decisions made by like a handful of actors that have plagued the games industry uh, for uh, yeah. decades hence. <laughs> it's weird, right? Because there's so much gatekeeping nowadays about, you know, oh, girls can't play games. Yeah. Fake gamer girls. Yeah, even though the market, like, yeah, even though the market research suggests that like a huge proportion of gamers are in fact girls, it's just that they're gate kept out of like a lot of the visibility in terms of like gaming spaces and so on and so forth. It's it's so wild because literally, if they flipped a coin and went the other way, I I don't. It would either be the exact same situation but reversed, but honestly, I don't think that would be the case. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I don't know if if they flipped a coin and sold video games to girls. I feel like yeah, they, they probably didn't flip a coin. I imagine there was a lot more graphing involved. <laughs> but yeah, hypothetically, say they had done that. Um, you know, what would have been the thing for boys? Boys would have been, I, I don't know. Maybe boys would be super into Ken dolls, <laughs> you know, as a token icon of their masculinity. Um, Who knows? But like, what do you think the gaming community would be like if it was for girls? Hmm, that's an interesting question. If you're, you know, the question is whether or not uh, the games industry would have developed. Uh, with the weird symbiotic relationship that it has, you know, because a lot of games are made to cater to men, right? So the question is, would the games industry have developed in the same way, but exclusively to cater towards women? In which case, what would they have been catering to? Would all games be, you know, pastiches of, uh, you know, 80s expectations of women? You know, instead of having a 50 bajillion shooter games, maybe we'd have like uh, 50 bajillion uh, home simulator games, you know? Like the annual franchise. Well, that's just the thing, isn't it? Because with with how games were made for a while and kind of still to today, you got a specific category of girl games that were like Barbie Princess Adventure or whatever. And they were always poorly designed and just like filled to the brim with pink. <laughs> And it was kind of just like, a, oh, yeah, if the girl wants to play the game, whatever. You know, but I'm interested to, to see what they would do if games were catered towards girls. Would it be the same? Because it's not like shooters were developed into games because boys are violent, necessarily. No. It's because it makes for good gameplay. It's exciting. Yeah, it was a, you know, a natural evolution of... um thinking about like what to make for video games because you know some of the first fps games are uh attempts to recreate uh well some of the first commercial fps games are like attempts to recreate things that they see in movies you know wolfenstein is heavily influenced by uh many of the world war ii movies um doom is a product of like very particular like culture you know heavy metal uh the satanic panic all of these different ideas and influences coalescing together into a thing. But you're right. The thing that drives Doom's gameplay is the fact that it's fun. That FPS, you know, because you don't have to make Doom a game necessarily about shooting demons as a space marine. 
you could have made Doom various other kinds of things, and you know we can argue whether or not it would have been successful. But the core of Doom's gameplay is fast-paced, frenetic shooting action. No. Absolutely. I mean, it's an interesting. And you know what? If you're listening to this, please comment, go to our subreddit or whatever, and and tell us your theory. Because I'd be interested to hear if you think it would just be the same as it is now, but with a lot more female characters as the lead? Or would it be wholly different? Would we get, would girl games, quote unquote, be the dominant thing? That's a, that's this a, was a wild tangent. <laughs> yeah, but this is why we do bite marks <laughs> to explore these wild tangents, because I do think that that is very definitely a question. But Let's get back on track. So the video games industry in the West has crashed. Uh, what happens the day after the crash? Uh, the day after the crash, everyone kind of just went okay. <laughs> I'm you're gonna have to be a bit more specific because I don't know exactly. I think it happened quite a few months down the line. <laughs> well, you know what I mean is, what is the direct after effect you know games stop becoming in at least in america they stop becoming the most popular thing um and there's a looming giant that is looking over the ocean going uh maybe it's time for us to do a thing right yeah so when atari crashed um basically like you said there was an oversaturation in the games industry at that point and most stores had insufficient space to carry the new stuff to like hold it so that they tried to return the surplus things to the publishers and they didn't the publishers didn't have new things or the money to issue refunds to stores mm. which made them all fold that's that's how the the crash happened really is that this one company folds and so many people are returning their games and they just couldn't deal with it. Yeah, the uh, and the they yeah. they relied on this more elastic flow model where they were continuously getting revenue but also very continuously spending that revenue. And if there was ever a disruption in the pipeline, uh if Mario ever got stuck in the pipeline, then instead of coming out the other end, he would basically just die. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um and basically, everything just started dropping in price. Uh, certain companies just left, like Magnavox abandoned the game business entirely. Uh, Atari went under and eventually became a subsidiary of, um, gosh, what was it called? Uh, it was Time Warner. Mm -hmm. And a lack of confidence just made shop owners stopped selling game consoles or games and it reduced their stock incredibly. So they, they just reserved that space for other products. So they, that's another reason why Nintendo had to go through toys because, uh, retailers wouldn't sell video game consoles. So Nintendo had to be like, it's a, no, it's a toy. It's an entertainment system. And then they're like, ha ha, lol, it is a game console. <laughs> uh, that's pretty funny. And, you know, it, it's kind of interesting, you know, that you point out that, yeah, there was a precipitous plummet in, you know, prices because what had happened was demand had dropped off. Uh, no new supply was being created. 
but most people didn't really want these kinds of things. And so people are trying to just get games out the door. And to, for the most part, you know, a lot of these just ended up in landfills because um, people just didn't want the games that were, you know, being made. That ga- there were no new prospects for games. Hmm. But it, it, the effects don't ju- didn't just like happen monetarily, you know. I mean, if you look at um the Famicom, right? Yeah, it was kind of distinctly designed to not look like a gaming system. Yeah, there was a cultural shock. Um, yeah, in the consciousness of people about what games were and you know um, the value of gaming as a whole, I would say. And you can you can see that as it is today. If you look back on uh, how games consoles used to look, they had a very distinct style about them. I mean, the Atari Twenty Six Hundred was wood paneled. <laughs> yeah, are you kidding me? To make it look like the TVs at home, yeah. And now, with with games consoles being so unpopular as they are, they're trying to make them look like things that are just part of you know technology. I mean, Nintendo of America, well, the North American model of the NES, which was the Famicom, was designed to look like a VCR <laughs> more than a game console. Well, you know, Callum, art imitates life. Nowadays, we've got the KFC console, which has a chicken bucket. Um, you know... <laughs> have, have you guys heard about this? <laughs> All KFC right. is making a console, and you can warm your chicken in it. I am in love with this console the kernel has delivered once again guys the the we, we we talked about how you know there were the problem without you know callum spoke earlier that there are a few game you know, console makers and that's a good thing uh, he was wrong we need to have a new console wars and it's going to be <laughs> kickstarted by kfc pizza hut uh <laughs> mcdonald's all burger king <laughs> yeah they're all going to come up with their own consoles it's it's going to be the console war 2.0 um, and what you have to do is buy all of them because they all come with separate cooking attachments so you can make a full meal if you have all three. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, you know, Useless third-party peripherals, those are a dead end. Not anymore. We're bringing it back. Uh, back. Uh, if, if, the pod, if the patron gets... Uh, a Patreon gets bigger. We are gonna buy a KFC console. <laughs> please, please, that's that's it's on the list. If you guys subscribe to the Patreon, uh, we'll use the money uh, company wise to get maybe like webcams, and uh, if we start playing games more on the channel, we might use it to get like a Switch. But I promise you, we will buy the KFC console. It it we have to. We, we you, that, you guys... it is, that is a a bite marks guarantee. Yeah. All right, so um, I I want to pick things up a little bit. You know, we we've we've had the ancient history. Uh, it's well, actually, the... just just before you do that, um, I want to ask you a question. Yes. Do you like anime? Ooh, uh, some anime is okay. Where did this Where did this lukewarm enjoyment of anime start? Probably watching something like, okay, I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, uh, but I really, really liked uh, an anime as a kid called, um, uh, an obscure anime, uh, dang, I, it had a, it had a, it was a mech anime, Eureka is 7, it? there we go. 
Oh wow, that's a that's a classic. Yeah, I, I really liked it, but uh, I could I never the, get into other anime. The the first anime I think I ever watched was probably Pokemon. But my point is that what do you think allowed anime to come to the West in such a big way? Trade deals? It no? was probably Nintendo dominating the games industry. <gasps> it's all connected. I mean, if if you're a kid and you're playing games like Mario and Zelda and everything and you see that this is a Japanese game industry and then they come out with something like Pikmin or Final Fantasy and you're you're playing Final Fantasy and it's crazy <laughs> and then you see something on your TV that's like oh anime people are going to let that through because that's what people are into now there is probably a direct causal link between the crash of the video games industry in the west and also the rise of anime uh, I, I definitely think that uh, Japan was a cultural hub. It was manufacturing and exporting culture. You know, not just like a, a great example of this is the fact that it's a central plot point. You know, Nakatomi Plaza and Die Hard, right? They could have just made it like the Alan Smith Corporation, but they specifically chose to make yeah. it, you know, a J Japanese corporation. And that was because, of course, Japan in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, was a cultural and technological hub. They were exporting. Yeah, I mean, they have like 80 cultural ambassadors, don't they? Mm, yeah, they, they were exporting culture. They were exporting food, sushi, you know, the popularity of sushi as a, as a, uh, a cultural icon of, you know, like, quote unquote, hip people. I've never had, su well, I don't really eat sushi. I don't <laughs> really even eat fish <laughs> but yeah but you don't eat fish but i mean there's vegetarians we're gonna go for sushi and i will get you vegetarian sushi that's, you that's, punts that's just a salad it's just a fancy salad Callum. it's not a salad it's got rice <laughs> and seaweed <laughs> and it's really good shut up <laughs> to the next thing you you had a point you want to pick this up <laughs> so before callum reaches over to the screen and uh, uh, <laughs> uh threatens me with his fists um the uh, the future of, of of games from the from the period, right? Fast forwarding, you know, uh, from the video game crash to you know more modern times. I I wanted to really talk about where the games industry is now, and maybe to do a little bit of speculation about where it's going uh, in future. And uh, to open this, uh, I wanted to talk about something called uh, tying. Uh, Callum. You spoke earlier that one of the big things that drove uh, the development and popularity of Atari was the fact that they were a first-party developer. They were producing hardware and they were selling games for it, right? So, well, they had a mix of first-party and third-party, but yeah, yeah, yes. So there's, a I would concept. say that they were they were big into that. So, so there's a, a concept uh, called technological tying, and uh, what technological tying is is just that. Uh, when a console maker makes software that is incompatible with hard ha uh, rival hardware, right? So, you know, the majority of the incomes for console makers are not really from selling the consoles. It's from selling, you know, the games. Because a person will just buy a single console, but they will buy multiple games. And so, really, you know, if you can get more people to buy games for your console, that's more advantageous. So... You know, for example, uh, let's look at a very brief study of some very popular games in you know recent times: uh, the Xbox, uh, the PlayStation Two, and the GameCube. You know, three big companies from Nintendo, uh, Sony, and uh, Microsoft. 
<clears throat> so uh, in terms of like looking at the three consoles, uh, the Xbox had the best hardware out of the three, but Microsoft um, had very little interest in doing third-party development. And contrast that with uh, Sony, uh, with the PlayStation 2, which did have weaker hardware, but it had a huge library, right? So many people nowadays remember the PlayStation 2 because it was just really, honestly... Um, a, a titan of there was of, just a ton of variety yeah there was you could have any any kind of game that you could imagine you could have it on the playstation 2 you know you had fighting games you had hardcore action games you had uh you know some of the uh early uh uh fps games and action adventure games you know i mean even to this day when someone describes like a crazy weird interesting game to me and i think about like what the box would look like it's always a playstation 2 box yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the PlayStation 2 was a cultural icon. And then, of course, you had Nintendo with the GameCube. <laughs> uh, and they tried to do something different, uh, which I will talk about Chad, later. None of the above. <laughs> it was the weakest of the hardware, and also it had one of the weirdest libraries. Uh, but the thing that it had going for it was that the Nintendo uh, market was really catering towards kids. You, Nintendo was like, hey, you know, we're not going to have hardcore violence and you know, uh, drug use and mature themes. We're going to have a game about uh, friendship and, you know, fun, and it's going to be bright and colorful. So Nintendo was well, kind of... Also, don't, don't, don't downplay the nostalgia factor. Yeah, that's I true. I mean, they had lots of older fans who were just coming back because, you know, they played Zelda 1. Yeah, that's true as well. Uh, that, that Nintendo definitely had its own unique version of in-house development, right? Um, that's, that's something that could be said. Uh, so what we found is that um, Sony had the most number of technologically tied games, you know, to its console. And I will link to a, a paper uh, that is the reference for this, you know, material uh, where it talks about the number of games and breaks it down and stuff like that. But yeah, Sony had the most number of games technologically tied to its console and it outsold the other two makers by leagues, right? Because it it said, we're going to do this development. We're going to make these games incompatible with other people's hardware. We're not going to do cross-platform support, et cetera, et cetera. And they outsold the most, they basically sold the most games. Uh, interestingly enough, they sold them at the lowest price, right? Uh, Sony games cost less than, um, you know, Nintendo or Xbox games. Uh, and correspondingly, even though Nintendo sold the fewest, it sold them at the highest price. Um, That's weird to me because I, I do remember looking up switch prices because he 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 but um i remember checking out like uh the prices of games and breath of the wild has not dropped in price since it came out it's still like a thousand and something mm -hmm. rand so there's so the the kind of research that i'm talking about here is really talking about a very different kind of games uh industry right uh and uh what what we're seeing is something that's kind of shifting and, and changing. So um, there uh, there's something called a, a a network effect, right? A network effect is basically where uh, the utility of a thing depends on the number of people that use it. So if you and I were the only people who, in the world who ever had Discord, then Discord would kind of be useless, <laughs> you know. Um, well, it would, yeah, I, I get you, but it would be nice. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice to us, the only Discord users. So if you know if two people have that would be a phone call. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be the equivalent of a phone call. If if two people have say you know a, a GameCube, then it it really limits the utility and widespread appeal of a GameCube. But as more people start playing with the GameCube, uh, the utility of the GameCube to the average person increases. Now, obviously, uh, 
the GameCube didn't do this, and it was the PlayStation 2 that did it. Um, and it really benefited. But, 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 we have to, we have to really talk about uh, business models, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, when, you were talking, <laughs> when you were talking about history, you, know, you were describing something that has come to be described as, quote-unquote, the old business model from the 1980s to the early 2000s. Uh, the business model is characterized by these very large studios that produce games for consoles and PCs. Uh, you know, companies like Activision Blizzard, EA, Sega, uh, and what they essentially produced were something uh, called a concentrated uh, oligopoly, right? You've got these big, massive a, companies, a, a concentrated oligopoly. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I remember that board game. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, oligopoly, the uh, lesser known version of Monopoly. Uh, so the hit game of that from the makers of depression. <laughs> so an oligopoly differs from a, nop- a monopoly uh, in that uh, a monopoly is where you have one company uh, controls everything. An oligopoly is where you have a couple of companies, at least more than two, right? And they all have. Wait, a... why is it Oli then? Why wouldn't it be Poly? Uh, that is a good question. Um, I... Sorry, I'm getting into linguistics. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> it it's it's described from a meaning in implying few, right? Because Im- importantly, an oligopoly is not very many. It's few. Oh, okay. It's not. It's more than two, which would be a duopoly. But it's not like thirty or twenty, right? It's like five or six or two or three. It's like uh, it's like skateboarding. Yeah. Not everyone can do an ollie. <laughs> uh, That's so... the worst. And, Ever. and you give me flack for my Mario joke earlier. <laughs> well, this is, you deserved this one then. Uh, fair enough. We reap what we sow. So in the in this old style monopoly, well, oligopoly, you've got uh, game companies producing what we call fully featured products. Each game comes out. There's no DLC. Uh, there might be some expansion packs, but if you're thinking about console games, it's usually a sequel. And these games cost about forty dollars to sixty dollars. Um, this is really, of course, you know, the golden age of what we call big box developers. Games are sold in boxes, right? Um, you know, we're talking about some of the most massive console launches and game launches of all time. Things like the PlayStation 2, games like uh, GTA 4, you know, when they launch, they sell millions and millions of copies. However, yeah, yeah. However, uh, from the early 2000s onward, we start to see the development of a new alternative business model <laughs> uh, coming into its own, right? Something that's going to oh, challenge... Yeah. The uh the old you know style of model. Now that's not to say oh, that please, the no. it's not to say yes. <laughs> it's not to say that the old model is obsolete, right? If we think about our big companies today, games companies like EA, Activision, uh, so on and so forth are still dominant. But the new model that emerges in the two thousands is not burdened by the issues of the old model, and in fact, uh, piggybacks on something that no one could have predicted. Mobile technology. <laughs> from the from the two thousands onwards, a new model develops, and uh, it's a total kind of uh, head flip of the old model. Now we have many small independent game makers who are distributing their games across multiple distribution channels, and ideally, they want to make games that are as widely featured as possible. You know, in the old model, if you bought a PlayStation Two game, you could only play it on a PlayStation Two. But in this game, uh, in this new model, if you're buying a game on a smartphone, they want you to be able to play it on a tablet, on a PC, right? And importantly, yeah, they're charging yeah. very little money for platform. it. <laughs> Most of the games in this new model were like w- under one dollar. 
right? And they reach a much larger audience. So to, to put this into contrast, uh, the best-selling PS2 game was uh, GTA San Andreas, right? Which sold like... I absolutely <laughs> believe that. <laughs> it, it really was. You know, I, I remember playing San Andreas. Um, it was a fun game. Although, you know, sometimes it felt a little bit weird because, you know, I don't know much about American culture. Um, certainly, you know, more or less than I did now. And it's just like, oh, okay, so this is a gang war between, you know, in, in the ghetto. It's like, oh, is this is this good? Is this a bad depiction of it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe young Emilio was thinking while playing GTA, is this, a, is this an accurate depiction of gang violence in America? It, it's just that, you know, GTA San Andreas looks and feels like a very different game to like the, like GTA Vice City, right? It's like a Godfather game, right? It's like, hey, oh, forget about it. You know, it's a bunch of Italian mobsters in Miami for some reason. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I have played five minutes of GTA San Andreas <laughs> where I ran up onto an overpass and jumped off with a parachute. Sweet. That's, That's all awesome. I did. You played most um, of the game. But yeah, you know, San Andreas is like, oh. I played a couple of hours of, of Saints Row. I wasn't done. I played a couple of hours of Saints Row 2 and I played like an hour of GTA five like that that's all i've played so i i have no frame of reference for any other gta game i've played these games not because i uh wanted to play them i've played them because other people were playing them and you know they were i was just chilling in you know at their uh house and i was like hey do you want to play this game I was like sure i'll play this game and then i just played it uh <laughs> but anyway so gta sold 17 the san andreas sold like 17 million copies do you want to know how many uh downloads pokemon go got I don't. Over one billion. Can we skip this? <laughs> no. Gosh, a seventh of the world downloaded that game. Yeah, and it's very apparent that these new models of this new model of video gaming is very different to the old one. It targets mass markets in a way that previously video games did not. You know, video gaming in the old model really is still a niche. You know, if we're talking about gamers in the early two thousands, they are still very much you know niche people. They're not talking about a cross-cultural, cross-generational mass appeal, right? Gaming hasn't really entered the pop, uh, pop, uh, pop cultural consciousness yet. But it's it's that introduction of these new widespread games, you know? Phone games is a great example of that. How many people's first experience playing a video game is playing on their old, like, Nokia, playing, like, Space Impact or Snake? Oh. <laughs> exactly. No, you've, you've, you've awakened memories in me. I've, ah, yeah, you know, this is this is how we... Uh, we've we've got to go deeper, Callum. We've got to go deeper. Uh, we've got to incept the, these memories. So, would I would you believe me if I told you that Apple were going to have a big way in shaping how the industry would develop, and not yes. for good reasons? So, yes. uh, this new model of video game, very prolific, very widespread, right? Uh, runs into an early problem, and that is the Apple iPhone Store. Basically. <laughs> yeah, Apple, mm -hmm. they're a big player in the media uh, mobile market, right? Uh, something else to, you know, also to mention, a lot of the development that prefaces this new model of video gaming happens without the actual companies doing anything, right? You know, you don't see a game maker being like, introducing the new phone, right? And then here's your phone that you can play games on. They don't do that. Previously, if you're making a console, you make games for the console, right? But nowadays, yeah. you don't have to make the phone to get the games onto the phone. It, so these people who are making games, they don't incur any of the costs of like hardware stuff because they don't have to do it. But Apple are a big player in the store. And 
they have a policy where they don't want to allow demo or trial games on the Apple Store, right? So this has a ripple effect for developers where they realize that they can't actually start selling games because, well, no one wants to pay like a full, you know, no one wants to pay for a game that they may not like, even if it is a fairly low price, you know? Even a game like fifteen dollars, you're not going to spend that money unless you know it's a. Uh, well, I I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I think we've received lots of evidence that people will pay and defend a game they don't like. Well, this is before the rise of super fandom culture, but you can you can see that at least many people would be a little bit hesitant, right, to do that. Yeah. So what these developers start to do is they realize that they need to find a way to get people to start playing their game but they also need a way to get them to do it for no money, right? Because they can't do a demo and they can't do a trial, but they will allow free games. So what develops is, of course, the free premium model, the free slash premium model. One version Uh... of the base game that allows you to try it for free without spending money, and then one version with the better version of the game with more content that justifies the price. That's how they get around. The heavens (laughs) opened and the light descended. And everything was worse. Yes. <laughs> that, that, oh, by the way, yeah. I, I wanted to bring up earlier, but I couldn't find an opportunity. Um, speaking of tech tying yeah, and Apple, Apple does tech tying with charges. Yeah, they do that. Uh, phone <laughs> charges. If, you, if you're using an Apple phone out there, just don't buy a third-party charger because it will brick that charger forever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's your PS, your tech PSA for today. Uh, technological tying is bad, people. Uh, cross-platform is better. But anyway, the effect that Apple, this decision, this one little decision that they probably thought would have no influence, had massive effects on the on the on the rest of the world. Um, you know, uh, for the most part, the traditional model of game development, the old model, is still kind of dominant, right? But nowadays, we're seeing a shift. We're seeing something where companies like EA and Ubisoft are looking at their old model and they're going, well, this isn't making us enough money. You know, I, 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 we can't really charge more for games because if we charged like $100 regularly for our games, most people wouldn't buy them. And so what we're seeing is the development of something called the live service game model, right? A game that is meant to be continuously played. It does not provide you a full fixed experience. It has continuous content and it has a continuous incremental pricing model, right? So you've got things like loot boxes, microtransactions. These are ways to monetize the game beyond, quote unquote, the purchase price, right? So this is what we talked about the, this is what we talk about when I talk about a chimera of the old and new style of development, right? Because this is the future of game development, at least in the AAA space. We've got- Um, I, I will say this, this also isn't new. It's not like loot boxes came out a few years ago or anything. If you've been playing Overwatch or Dota or anything, loot boxes have always been there. They just they were just used cosmetically. Yes. What we see the live service, what differs the live service game and really the live service model is that it is a hybridization of the two styles of game. A, you know, you want to be able to develop quickly and get games out to people, but you also don't want to have like full featured development cost for like a full featured game. By having continuous uh, content delivery, right? More, more like more, more uh, mobile games, you can get more people hooked into your game and presumably spending, you know, in the long term. But similarly, it, a lot of the predatory practices, in, 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 in many cases, the live service model is the worst elements of both the models put together, right? You don't get like fully featured high quality games on the one end, and you don't get like, 
very casual, very uh, low consequence, uh, consequence gains on the other end, you know, in the mobile market. Now you get the worst of both worlds hybridized together into this new, you know, model. And uh, yeah. we, we got to be real, folks. Game prices have been increasing. Uh, and that's how game developers... I mean, there was, a, there was a movement recently to push the average game price up to $70 on there. Yeah, $70. And uh, some some companies are experimenting with releasing you know, uh, their AAA games for more money. And that's a problem, of course, because they are still monetizing you on the back end. It's just that now they're trying to extract more and more profit, right? We are seeing kind of a cycle develop, you know, uh, where... Back in the 70s, when games were, uh, you know, sorry, 80s, when the crash was happening, people were becoming increasingly dissatisfied with their games because companies were increasingly trying to milk you for money, you know? They keep releasing garbage games, low-quality, low-effort stuff to just keep selling more and more games because they figured that the consumer public would, uh, you know, just keep buying. They kind of thought we were basically an endless money pit. The same thing is happening. There is rising dissatisfaction. But there are, you know, problems. Um, there are issues that would prevent this model from becoming uh, <laughs> uh, a failure, you know, for causing another video game crash. And maybe we can talk about that in a future episode, like maybe why a video game crash is not as likely this time around as it was back in, you know, in the 80s. Which is kind of a shame because I'd like to see how video games would come back from a second crash. Nintendo swoops in again. <laughs> or maybe another company swoops in. Like, what if out of the blue all of a sudden the dreamcast is back <laughs> oh man uh you know i i still think the amiga is kicking around in some form or the other <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure like doesn't didn't razer have a like a special ipad with uh joysticks on the side that you could play games on callum uh this is this is how we tie it in it's the it's the food console wars the real consoles crash and then everyone's like I can't justify buying a console. I have to buy something that I can also cook with. Therefore, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but I can see so many problems with um, my wooden TV stand. If I put my Burger King station underneath it and the grill on top just stays on forever. It's not perfect, Callum. I mean, we've got to iterate on these designs, but it's progress. This is the future of game development. Surely. We'll have to make sacrifices. <laughs> yeah, you know, Callum, sometimes you have to sacrifice for the greater good. Your chicken included. <laughs> a, ca- a casualty of science. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's a good place to drop this off. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, the takeaway oh, is... Oh, wait. Wait, hang on. What's that? Oh? What's that in the distance? Uh, what is that, Callum? I... Is, that, is that a beam of light? Uh, oh, oh. I think I can hear... <laughs> Something. What is it? I I hear a, a lack of something, a lack of a voice, the voice of Todd. Ah. And welcome to a very special segment that I created many months ago, and I'm looking for a way to squeeze into this show. <laughs> it's working title currently is "Are You There, Todd?" Ah, okay. Hit me up. Or, or alternatively, where the hell is Elder Scrolls Six? <laughs> Uh, recently, Cyberpunk 2, uh, Cyberpunk 2077, as it's officially pronounced, uh, came out after being delayed for about a year. And instead of delaying for another year and, you know, finishing the game, they released it. Which is pretty surprising, 
for CD Projekt Red because that's kind of Bethesda's bag. And release buggy, fix later. Remind me, Amelia, when was when was Elder Scrolls Six announced at E3? A while ago, like. Where's what the, the hell, Todd? <laughs> well, you see, Callum, uh, they're they're still milking uh, Skyrim, uh, so we we can't have a new Elder Scrolls until uh, every single last person on the Earth has bought a copy of Skyrim, which is, of course, when Todd will assume his final form and uh, then bequeath onto us the mere peasants the next Elder Scrolls game. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as we as we bid you. A- on farewell in the next few minutes. I just want to remind you that this is our punishment. We 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 gained hubris. We we got greedy to to avarice with our with our spending and our, our wants and our needs from the gaming industry. And so Todd punishing us. As is now, as is fair. As is we we, we deserve take this. Your and Todd will beam the Elder Scrolls into your brain. Or you can so play it you on the KFC the... console. You are selling... <laughs> this is sponsored by KFC, by the way. It's not. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. I don't even eat KFC. <laughs> and this has been the first of many installments of What the Hell, Todd? Look out for more or of those. Are you there, Todd? <laughs> Look out for more of those in uh, future episodes. Um, we'll sprinkle them in like secret raisins in a cookie. Yeah. Uh, so right now you should be seeing um, a title card uh, of the patrons. We'd like to, you know, we'd like to thank you guys uh, for uh, supporting the show, um, and uh, we hope that uh, you know more people will continue to support us. Um, our Patreon, we've re we reworked the tier requirement, the tier rewards. So you know now you can get things, including, of course, early access to this video. <laughs> and we'd like to extend a special thanks to our Gigabyte patrons who support us at five dollars a month. Thank you to Ilias Dope and Amber Slim. You guys help make Bite Marks happen, and we're very very thankful. Um, Woo! and uh, that was yeah. a bit loud. Uh, Follow us on social media. Uh, we've got Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. Angry post in our Reddit. We're, we're probably going to reply. <laughs> uh, you know, t- tell us how we're wrong Squidly. about the, the uh, you know Elder the new Elder Scrolls. Um, Support yeah. Todd. If you're be if, an advocate for Todd. Yeah, sure. D- defend a defend a, a massive CEO. Uh, I don't mind. Um, Defend this poor millionaire. He needs it. <laughs> uh, uh, subscribe to the channel if you're not already subscribed. Uh, you know, maybe give this a share. Um, yeah. Uh, good night, everyone, and uh, thank you. Thank you very much, and ciao.